This is the Luke Thomas Show podcast. You can listen to the full show weekdays from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM Fight Nation Channel 156. Today on the Luke Thomas Show podcast, we're going to check in with UFC lightweight Kevin Lee to see how he's doing after his last loss at UFC Brasilia. We'll speak with a professor at the University of Michigan, Stephanie Preston, on why hoarding and shaming people for hoarding is totally rational. I'll give you an update on what the governor of Nevada is saying about opening up businesses again and whether UFC can start back up there. Plus, we'll give you the final four on our Ultimate Fight Movie Bracket Challenge. The Luke Thomas Show airs weekdays at 3 p.m. East Coast time right here on SiriusXM Fight Nation. And do not forget about the mailbag, Show at gmail.com. Let's talk some UFC news right off the break, if we can. Now, this is not exactly UFC news specifically, but if you just connect the dots, there's no way it can't be. What do I mean by that? Let's take a step back before we take a step forward. Very quickly, y'all recall that we're, we reported, or at least we relayed the reports of others from ESPN and MMA Fighting and others, that UFC was targeting a show on May 9th. Now, they did not say exactly where that was going to take place. It's believed that uh, Nevada was on the short list, uh, potentially Florida, given that Florida had essentially opened the door to them in an explicit way. Still don't know what the status of that is. But there was another comment that Dana White, UFC president, had given to Variety magazine. And that comment was basically that uh, not indicating what exactly was going to happen on May 9th, but that that several shows in May and then for the foreseeable future beyond that were going to be held at the UFC's Apex facility, which of course is in Las Vegas, Nevada. Now to do that, some rules have to be adjusted. Any kind of shelter-in-place or stay-at-home rules would have to be lifted such that 50, 100 people could get together, whatever the bare minimum was. But right now it's 10, so it can't be that. So that would have to be changed. And the athletic commission would have to sanction it. You could not hold one in Nevada territory without their consent, without losing your license, essentially, which they would not risk doing. So you thought to yourself, well, if they're coming out with a statement like that, I would imagine they've been in contact with the Nevada Commission, and I would imagine that they have some telegraphing from the state government that this kind of stuff is going to be adjusted. It does not appear to be the case that that is true. Now, I don't know that that's not true, but um, I don't know. I'm not – let me explain what I mean. Two pieces of news for you. Number one, it comes to us from MMA Fighting. The Nevada Athletic Commission's Executive Director, Bob Bennett, said this to MMA Fighting, quote, we will see what the data reveals based on the science of COVID-19 and move forward accordingly. Bennett said there could be an update at the start of May, which is reportedly when the UFC plans to restart their event schedule. He said it's, quote, premature to comment on remarks made by Dana White, um, He went on to say, we are closed until further notice, and once again, the data from science will determine future events accordingly. Uh, This is not going to be a political decision. Excuse me, that's a little bit later. It comes from somebody else. So he declined to comment, basically, on the UFC stated Apex plans and says there's no official date to reopen business. Now, he could be playing coy. I'm less convinced by this than anything else. Again, I think the UFC probably, you know, remember, they have a whole compliance division with Mark Ratner in terms of government protocol. Uh, So I would imagine some kind of contact has been had, but the real interesting one came from the governor, Steve Sisolak. 
Steve Sisolak is an interesting character, right? Let me pull this up here for just a second. Sisolak. Uh, he is a Democrat. And again, I hate to say that this is a politicized issue, but it is a politicized issue where depending on how you're getting your information and what politically oriented media ecosystem you operate in, that's going to probably have some kind of effect, not totally, but it, should, it, it will in general have some kind of an effect on to what extent you believe this ought to be overblown or you believe that uh, businesses should reopen up really soon. You can make a determination about how fair of a characterization that is, but it feels like to me this COVID-19 issue has been eaten up by the culture wars. So let's continue. This comes to us from the Las Vegas sun of all places. Governor Steve Sisolak said the state is nowhere near ready to begin reopening parts of its shuttered economy due to the coronavirus. The Democratic governor said on a Tuesday night news conference that he doesn't have specific benchmarks he'd like to see before considering easing closures. He said he will rely on doctors who have been advising him about the pandemic while considering factors such as rates of infection and deaths, the impacts on hospitals, and input from businesses. But he said he didn't want to give anyone the idea that discussions about easing restrictions and reopening businesses will happen anytime soon. Quote, this is not going to be a political decision for when we open. We're going to take it slow and steady and listen to the doctors. Sisolak did not answer a question about whether he was asked to join the coalition of Western states, um, but he said he shared their goals and visions. Obviously, the casino industry is a big deal, and um, the volume of requests for unemployment has overwhelmed their office, which the governor said is not designed to handle that many calls or attempts to file for the benefits online. He said the state is going to be adding help to staff the people to get the benefits accordingly, which will be retroactive so the residents eventually get the money that they need, blah, 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 blah. Uh, okay. So understand something about this beyond just the fact that you have got now the Athletic Commission Executive Director saying no comment. Less convinced by that, but you have to add it to the pile of the argument by itself. Then you have the governor of the state saying, uh, we're not even close to being open, Right. Not even close, which means that easing the restrictions, the two things that need to happen, do not appear to be ready for that to happen. Now, all of this doesn't mean that the May 9th show is not going to happen. It could happen in Florida. What it means is the idea that it was A, going to happen in May 9th in Nevada seems premature. And that it's going to open up for business in May, ready to go for themselves in some kind of ease restriction kind of way, seems profoundly out of touch. And understand something about Nevada. Nevada has done a pretty great job at minimizing exposure to the coronavirus. They don't have a ton of outbreaks. I think they have 130 deaths total. Um, again, I live in just a city. I don't even live in a state. I live in just a city. I'm the only... I'm the only I live in the only part of the country that has, in the contiguous United States anyway, that has no state. Okay? Uh, and we've had 81 deaths. You know? I mean, they're, they're barely worse off than us, and they have a population of 3 million people. It is shocking. It is shocking to see how good that they've done, and even they're not ready. Now, we can have a debate about to what extent the government's response at the state, um, local, and federal level has been so inept that it's going to cause economic devastation to the point where some hard choices begin to get made. Um, I'm slowly warming to that conversation because the whole point of the of the of 
putting everyone inside is that so the government could get a at all levels a competent response to deal with it and then when the virus subsides to a degree uh, you have all the other mechanisms in place so that if there is any other flare-up you can control it more readily we haven't done any of that yet right which requires an enormous amount of testing we're still easily well over a million and a half tests per day short not, i'm sorry but I'm, uh, I'm sorry not per day um um, cumulatively. But you get the idea. So that's a separate conversation for a separate time. All of this is to say is the UFC keeps making assumptions about all of this changing in a way that is going to be accommodating of them. And every time they do that, it kind of blows up in their face. And I'm not necessarily like super thrilled about that, but it's something you just cannot ignore. You cannot ignore it. So, uh, Florida or bust, it appears, because it ain't going to be in Nevada on May 9th. Uh, virtually no chance that that happens at this point. Seems deeply, deeply unlikely. Or they might go back to Native American territory, who knows, but I suspect that that invites more scrutiny than it's worth. Going to, going to Florida seems to offer something that the other ones don't. So, a situation to follow, to be clear. Basketball has become a global game. From legends such as Hakeem Olajuwon and Dirk Nowitzki to today's superstars like Giannis and Luka Doncic. Giannis to the rim, slam it with the left hand. There's no shortage of international talent in the NBA. World of Basketball with Fran Fraschilla is a podcast dedicated to profiling the players, coaches, and executives who have led the way in growing the sport in their countries. New episodes are available Thursday on the Sirius XM app and Pandora Podcasts. All right, welcome back. Luke Thomas Show. Let's get right into it now. Our next guest on the hotline is a professor of psychology at the University of Michigan. She wrote this really great article that I was I thought I thought needed to be told to a wider audience. It's called Your Brain Evolved to Hoard Supplies and Shame Others for Doing the Same. It is Stephanie Preston. Professor Preston, how are you? Great. How are you doing today? I'm doing quite well. I have to tell you, here's why I found this article so fascinating, because... Um, there was, obviously, there's been a run on grocery stores, and grocery stores have been overwhelmed, and there's been a lot of discussion about hoarding, and uh, people seem to trivialize the debate a little bit, as if this is some kind of reaction that only shrill, unreasonable people make. And I always thought to myself, I don't know, if you're going to be locked inside and you need supplies, making sure you have them seems totally rational. So um, give me just sort of the big picture here. Why, in your view, is hoarding, uh, to some extent, a completely rational and common animal response? Yeah, I fully agree with you. I mean, I think, first of all, um, all mammalian brains have this capacity for hoarding, right, that comes out in times or in species where resources are unpredictable. So if a squirrel can't get nuts in the winter or the spring, then they have to hide them in the fall and know where they are so they can dig them up later when they need it, right? So we're not really any different. We use the exact same brain areas and we make decisions where our anxiety about the availability of a resource is gonna drive us to want to stockpile it when we do come across it, which in theory is very rational and in practice is also very rational since we don't know if they say you might need to be home for two weeks without going to the store. 
you have to have two weeks of supplies. You can't do that without stockpiling a little bit, right? And some people have to cover many people in one household, or they have to take care of an elder relative, and they need a lot of supplies in order to cover a couple-week period. So I don't think it's very strange at all, and I think most people are doing it a little, but most people aren't doing it to an excessive degree or a degree that warrants shaming. What is a uh, what is a good working definition of hoarding? Hoarding is just the accumulation of a resource in order to have a supply later. So here's some like everyday examples people don't think about. Your pantry is a hoard because it's like food that you keep for a while and you keep it in one place. That's a, a larger hoard. Or like your bank account is a hoard because you're keeping all of your money in one place in case you need it later. And the riskier a situation becomes, the more people put energy into this and you might scatter hoard, right? So if you are traveling in a high crime area, you might put some money in your pocket, some in your purse, some in your shoe, right? So leave some at the hotel, that's scatter hoarding. And it's totally rational when people diversify their investments and they put money across many different stocks and bonds. That's a form of scatter hoarding. So these are behaviors we're doing all the time. We just don't realize we're doing it or we don't classify them as hoarding because they just seem so natural to us. The other part is uh, beyond just the definition, people would, I I think if I told you, sorry, not you, but if I told you know, my neighbor, oh, you know, this, uh, you're putting money in your savings account, that's hoarding too. They might say, right, but that's not the same as going to a grocery store in a panicked state. Like your 401k is a measured, calm response for the uh, the knowable, well, the unknowable, but knowing you're going to need money later in your future. That's not the same as like, you know, running into the Prius, driving down to the grocery store and putting in as much toilet paper in your cart as possible. Do you see a distinction between those two behaviors? Yeah, I mean, I think it just depends on the urgency of the situation, right? So you need your retirement money maybe many years from now, and you still need to be anxious about the availability of money when you're retired in order to put money into that account, right? A lot of people aren't scared enough, and they actually don't put money into their (laughs) retirement accounts. But like the urgency is a lot higher in this situation, right? Because the resource might only be available for a short amount of time. There's a window where you think you could get toilet paper, but not later, and you have to take advantage. That's That seems perfectly normal. Um, and I think it's kind of funny because you might shame the other person who did it, but why do you care? You care because you also tried to get toilet paper, right? So. Right are we to criticize somebody else for doing it when everyone's doing it a little bit you toilet paper is slightly essential i would say um well speaking of that part of it to me also um this debate about hoarding in, in our country seems to fall along like what you're hoarding so let me give you an example if you're hoarding um uh toilet paper that is treated in the media like the, the the act that toilet paper is the fault line upon which this debate is being ha- had. It seems to trivialize it a little bit, right? Like, oh, toilet paper really something for a you know a bodily function? I mean, th- what what has America really come to versus you know um, some kind of other precious resource, right? So is it is it a function of what this debate is being had around versus uh, the the actually the merits of the debate itself? 
Yeah, I mean, for one thing, I don't think toilet paper is trivial for most people, right? Like, if you don't have any toilet paper or paper towels or tissues or whatever, life's going to be pretty different around your house, you know? And so, but I think that's also part of why the articles are easy to pass around because toilet paper sounds a little ridiculous, you know, because of its association with bodily functions, which people think of as taboo, you know, like are silly or weird. So, I mean, I think it gets a lot of attention. And if, if you go to the store and you need food, even if one kind runs out, you can just get another kind. It's easily replaceable with something else. But toilet paper only has a couple of possible replacements, all of which are also out. So I don't know. I don't, I don't think it's that weird, but I do think the strangeness of toilet paper and its associations make people um, want to talk about it more, perhaps. It's more yeah. noticeable to have these stark, empty shelves, whereas other food that's missing, it's distributed around. It's not quite as visually striking. Uh, here, I guess all I mean to say is I certainly agree with your characterization. I just feel like the debate would be different if you had to go to the grocery store to get insulin. There would still be complications in the debate around hoarding, but people would not be – it would be a very different kind of debate. When people bring up toilet paper, it gets almost like a the, – the debate almost becomes juvenile to a degree. Not not saying that's fair, but that's the characterization it ends up taking on. Yeah, I agree with you, and I think – the, ser the severity of the situation is going to elevate the panic and the degree of social saving. So let's say it's insulin. People recognize that as a life-saving chemical, right? And if one person takes enough for a whole month, and that means another person doesn't get any for that week, that creates a serious problem where you really need regulations in place to keep the supply even across the individuals. Um, so that, I think, would cause a much higher degree of conflict among people if there's a shortage of something like that. Like that, that is something that they have to put a lot of work into ensuring everybody can have access to and nobody takes more than they need for the given amount of time. So let's get to the second part of the article here, and we will share it on the station account, which is about the shaming aspect of it. You had alluded to it just a few moments ago. Let's get to it now. Um, what is the rational response for why, A, people shame, and B, do it in these situations <laughs> under what can be considered pretty hypocritical circumstances where they are guilty of the very same behavior? Right. Well, if you think of it, we evolved as a social species, and... It's just like in monkeys, you would see this, right? So one monkey is in the forest walking along and finds a pile of food. If that monkey doesn't alert the other monkeys that there's this pile that they can all share, he would actually get beat up, right? And so there's like this social process that we evolved in our brains to make sure we're monitoring one another and making sure everybody's allocating resources fairly. Maybe you've heard about these economics games where like, if I get $20 and I can offer you some, but I don't give you a fair amount, people will actually pay money to punish somebody who is unfair to them. Mm -hmm. So they have this like highly developed sense of fairness that they're monitoring constantly what other people are doing and making sure to shame or punish them, even in a costly way, even paying money to do so if they think somebody's out of line and might, you know, take advantage of the group. So 
you know, you see it in many different contexts, but I think in this one, it's, it's, it's not bad to shame people to prevent, keep everybody in line. Like you'd, you'd be embarrassed to take away too much when you know people are watching, which is a good thing probably, right? Still, to what extent does social media play a role here in amplifying some of this? Maybe to well, certainly a degree to which it would not ordinarily happen in other circumstances, right? It can go beyond simply your local neighborhood or you know community or something like that. And then to what extent does shaming turn into something more than just policing the ranks and into something beyond the social, pro- you know, keeping in line the social process to where it's now just toxic or even sport? Is there is there any kind of way to differentiate once you've crossed, you know, the Rubicon here a little bit? Right. Well, I think that's part of the issue of social media in general, right? Like it gives people potentially a really loud voice, even if they're not representative of the population. So, for example, people will share an article about one person who did something egregious, like the guy who had 17,000 bottles of hand sanitizer. That got shared quite a bit in the first weeks. And then you think, oh, people are terrible, you know, and everybody's in an uproar. But it's really just that one guy and his brother who are doing it, right? It's not everybody. It's not representative. But you get this, like, skewed view of people's behavior. But also, like, you know, the people on social media who are criticizing when they see somebody out and about or at the park or something, it only takes a couple really easily upset people um, to create that toxic environment that you're talking about. And so it amplifies the voices of the few who might not really be representative of the average person who's sort of managing the situation and not freaking out but then you get freaked out when that's all the messaging you hear online the last part about this i don't think this was mentioned per se in your article but i'd love to get your perspective which is the role of beyond social media but actually media in general Uh, most media studies show that local media is by far the most trusted but they're the ones to me that engage in this practice where um it sort of reminds me of black friday coverage we're like, you know there's going to be fistfights over a toaster at Best Buy. Let's go set up for it and just get it on camera and then show it on the evening news. Almost like you're, 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 um, you're, amp- you're amplifying this behavior that whatever its rational uh, basis, you're, you're projecting it in a way that is designed to be irrational and conflating it with consumerism. To what extent has that skewed the debate? Yeah, I mean, I think you're exactly right. Like your brain is hardwired to look for danger, right? So you're constantly scanning your environment to try to figure out where are sources of danger? Where is there trouble? Where is there some, that's like why people rubberneck at a car accident, because they're trying to soak in as much information as possible about dangerous situations in order to avoid them themselves. So the news media knows this. They're playing right into our bias to look at the, you know, disturbing or gross or unusual event, because I don't know, people are attracted toward it in a way that's like, in the long run, a good thing, because you're learning about where there's danger, but it's being exploited for sure. I remember there was a small earthquake when I lived in California, and (laughs) nothing really major happened at that particular time. And so the, the local news just kept showing one vodka bottle that had fallen and broken at a liquor store. 
And they just kept showing it over and over and over again, like the colossal damage of the earthquake. But it was really like the same bottle every time. That is hilarious. Uh, well, this was a great article. If you guys want to read it, we will share it again. Your brain evolved to hoard supplies and shame others for doing the same. I guess it originally appeared in a site called The Conversation. I found it on JSTOR Daily. But uh, either way, we will share it. And it's great stuff. Stephanie Preston, a professor of psychology at the University of Michigan. Really appreciate your insight. And thank you so much for writing this article. I think I found it quite valuable. Thank you so much. I hope you have a great day. Talking to the biggest names in pro wrestling. Friend of the show, Cody Rhodes. I particularly told people living in fear is no way to live. And honestly, I just wanted the platform to say that we're all in this together and that we're going to get through this. And please enjoy the two hours of hopefully escape and distraction uh, we have for you tonight. I, this is a very unique time for a wrestler. Busted Open, Monday through Saturday, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern on Sirius XM Fight Nation. All right, we are back. Joining us now here on the hotline on the Luke Thomas Show is a man you know quite well. Lightweight, welterweight, lightweight, back and forth. He's all over the place. I want to check in with him. I always find him an interesting conversation. It's Kevin Lee, the Motown phenom. Hi, Kevin. How are you? What's going on, Luke? Always a good time, you know. All right, let's, uh, let's catch up here just a little bit here. You're in Las Vegas? Yep, yep. Now, yep. are you in a house? I have fight. Okay, you're in a house solo? You got people with you? Uh, solo, but then, you know, I have a visitor here or there. You know, kind of, it, it, it's hard doing this quarantine totally in jail, so... I have I have a couple of visitors. Even even prisoners get visitors sometimes. <laughs> I suppose that's true. Are you? Um, well, this is what I'm asking everyone. First of all, like, how are you dealing with all of the various challenges related to your professional responsibilities? Yeah, you know, uh, it honestly didn't affect me too too much. You know, I kind of was just kind of going about uh, uh, normal status quo. The good thing is, I was the last person to fight um throughout this quarantine so it didn't really affect me i feel like how it affect other people you know they didn't get to fight uh and even though the fight didn't really go my way like when i really sat back i, I had to be kind of grateful for it i got to compete i got to make some money uh uh i got to do what i what i love to do so once the fight was over and this quarantine stuff really started and i came back home uh it kind of it kind of felt a little normal and, and i kind of went about status quo even though that probably ain't wasn't the best idea, to be honest with you. You mean getting back to training in the status quo kind of way? Uh, yeah, I, I did a little bit of training, but you know, I, I still, I still kind of went about my day, just kind of the same. Not, not necessarily the same, but I still kind of was, was, was doing stuff and kind of going a little overboard. I wasn't taking it as serious uh, as I should, and uh, now I feel like, you know, I busted up my knee real bad, and now it's gonna make me. You know, the universe set my ass down, so now I'm laid up, and I'm starting up another relationship with uh, Call of Duty. <laughs> I just started one with Mortal Kombat 11. You played that game before? Uh, yeah, um, uh, my brother's heavy into it, so I, I, I fuck with it sometimes, but nah, nah, it, it's yeah, too, it's, too unrealistic. It, dude, in the music I listen to and the video games I play, if someone's not getting dismembered, I don't know what the point of it is. <laughs> uh, um, but let me ask you about your knee. What's the, what's the status? Yeah. So uh, I haven't got it checked out yet. You can see I'm laid up now. Ooh. Um, yeah, it's, I'm. You know, I've been through enough injuries to where I'm pretty sure it's my ACL. Um, so it, it's just a matter of how torn it is and uh, and what the severity is. I've got an appointment at six thirty. You know, all the uh, all the the hospitals are super backed up. So I didn't even bother going to the hospital. They're just sending me straight to the imaging center, get an MRI done on it. Um, I've done a 
I, I haven't even been able to do much PT. It's been about five days since it happened, and uh, it's fucked. It's my first time really going through a, a knee injury like this, I think. How, how did it happen? You know, doing – honestly, not even doing something that, that was totally out of the, the, the ordinary. Like, uh, I mean, I'm not going to say specifically how it happened because insurance, <laughs> you know. Uh, but it wasn't something totally out of the ordinary. I, I think uh, I may have been affected by this this whole, like, virus and shit more, more than I think. Um, for some reason, I've just been, like, overly fatigued. Like, my body ain't been feeling great. And uh, I, I shifted when I should have, you know, I zigged when I should have zagged. And, and I heard the pop pretty pretty loud. And, uh, and the next day, it swole up to the size of a balloon. And then since then, I'm just unable to, to really move it much. Now, do you think you had COVID-19? Um, I, I think I – honestly, I, I think I did back in January – you know, I remember there was like three days where I was just really, really sick, but like a fatigue kind of sick. Like my body, like I just couldn't even get out of bed. And uh, and my dad had it for about three weeks. And mm. at the time, we just thought it was the flu, you know. But then once we come back and, 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 and all this is really blowing up and we're really seeing it, um, kind of putting two and two together and, and thinking that that could have been it. Um, but, you know, since, since then, like since the fight, since I came back and, and came back to Vegas, uh, I have been feeling a little like under the weather, but I think that's just I'm I'm, I'm not gonna say it's COVID because I haven't get I haven't got tested for it, so right I don't know. Were you at all? Uh, I mean, I, knew, I mean, it's once you're dialed in on fight week, I guess that's all you're really focused about. Did you have any concerns yep. about fighting in Brazil, given that there was no COVID testing happening at the at the time? Um, for sure. I mean, yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, just because. It, I didn't want you don't want to get sick in Brazil and go to a to a hospital down in Brazil. That's the last thing that I wanted to have happen. Uh, so, you know, and I was there for 10 days and, and, and meeting a lot of people and, and talking with a lot of people. And I just know the infrastructure down there ain't really uh, put together the way it should be. So, you know, yeah, it, it, was, it was definitely a concern, especially with fighting a Brazilian who didn't have to travel. Do you know people? And I mean, actually, if you look at the numbers, uh, Nevada's done a really great job at containing this for the most part. Do you mm -hmm. know people in your state uh, or anyone else who's gotten the the disease? Um, I mean, not personally, just because you know I keep a tight circle anyway, and and only uh, communicate with a certain number of people anyway. So no, not not personally, not nobody. Uh, like I said, other other than my dad, who who we're pretty sure uh, did have it, um, but this was back in January, so. You know, no, nobody else. Yeah, I think my co-host on my other show had it. Uh, he okay. got it in January, flying back and forth from New York to Las Vegas. He had to get mm -hmm. hospitalized, and they were like, "You don't have the flu, but you do have pneumonia." And then he had like heart arrhythmia and whatnot, which you, like you go back and you look, it's like all the symptoms. But he right. hadn't had a COVID test either, you know. So it's just that's the other part about this. It's like, who the hell knows with this shit, you know? Yeah, especially back in January, we really didn't know what it was. Uh, he did go to the. He went to the hospital. They they told him, you know, yeah, it was the flu. They gave him a couple. Uh, uh, they gave him the antiviral for the for uh, influenza or whatever it was. Um, but it didn't really help. You know, he still he still was sick for another two weeks. So I think his body just fought it off. But if he was a little bit older or had like a little uh, more health problems, that actually could have got a whole lot worse. You know, people were really dying from this. This is no joke. How old is your pops? Uh, he's fifty three. Oh, but, he's you know, young. Yeah, he's got good genetics too. You know, wow. So he's smooth. He was smooth. <laughs> yeah. My dad, my yeah, dad's seventy nine, bro. It's a whole new ball game. 
Yeah, he might. Yeah, it might be a wrap for that one. <laughs> it might be. I mean, I don't want to say it to you, but but you know, yeah, stay away from him. Cover your mouth when you cough. All, all yeah. that. He's 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 minding his p's and q's, so we're not too worried. But uh, all right, let's talk about the fight for a second. A um, mm-hmm. bunch of different questions I have about this one. First of all, have you gone back and watched it? Yeah, of course, of course. All right, I don't like to, but yeah. I had to. What did you see? What that went wrong? Um. I stopped listening uh, to the game plan, and I abandoned the game plan. Um, the the first two rounds were 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 going how exactly how we thought they were going to go, and uh, everything was working. And at the end of the second, I feel like uh, he was starting to, to to break and and get to the point. Um, my coaches was telling me, you know, save that for the fourth and the fifth. But when when the third round started, even when I sat in the corner. I told them what I was going to do. I told them I was going to throw the kitchen sink at them. I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to walk his ass down and, uh, and, and you know, kind of abandon the game plan. And that's exactly what I did. And against a guy like that, I stuck my neck out there. You know, one of the things was never shoot out in the open against him. And uh, I, I learned the hard way. T- tell me, give me a sense of what the game plan was. What did you think was the key to beating him, given your strengths? Um, it's just stay uh, really sharp on my defense um, and, and, and kind of take his weapons away from him uh, and, and then start to implement myself at, at the end of the fight or, or uh, as the fight gets going longer. Um, and I felt like my defense was sharp, but he didn't really hit me with anything. Even after the fight, like it was, it, I, I took no cuts or no damage or, or not much. You know, he threw a lot, um, but, you know, that was kind of part of the, the game plan was get him to, to – to, show his cards early and then, and then take it from him. But, you know, I guess I, I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm very, I don't know. I, I think I got impatient and that's uh that's one of the biggest things that, that I kind of am trying to learn from that fight is uh learn to try and have more patience with it. Why do you think you decided, I mean, you, you mentioned it was impatience, but like, did you just disagree with the corner? Did you feel like heading into the third? I think I got this figured out in a way that they don't. Like, why do you think you made that adjustment in a way that the corner did not advise? Because uh, I'm an asshole. Because <laughs> 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 that, that, I'm a fucking like I don't know. I'm I'm just uh, I don't know. I, sometimes I, I feel like I got a little emotional. Um, is what it was, and, and and once those emotions got to me, I think I was emotional throughout the whole fight. Uh, but but I was able to control them for 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 a a, a good part of it. But then once the emotions kind of overrode it and got really got to me, uh, uh, that that part of me just came out. And I was like, OK, well, fuck whatever you're talking about. I hear you. But, you know, I'm seeing something a little different. And uh, I, I wasn't seeing something different. That, that's the thing. I just I just made myself do it. Hmm. Um, and I think it's just emotional, to be honest with you. It, I don't I don't know. I've had I mean, I. The, the the worst part about it is I have had the trouble before. You know, it kind of was the same feeling uh, as the fight with Tony Ferguson, except with Tony, I w- I just went right out the gate like that. Um, and with this one, it's like I p- I picked the wrong spot to do that. So. Uh, if I may, and if I'm wrong, it'd be like, oh, Luke, you don't know what you're talking about. It will not hurt my feelings. And certainly Faraz Zahabi and Dewey Cooper have – forgotten more than I'll ever know but when I was watching you know what sort of stuck out to me about it Kevin a little bit Mm. I had thought to myself um especially not not so much early but later Mm -hmm. there was no real uh you didn't have a jab that could get him off of you 
he was just kind of not on top of you exactly, but he was in your space in a way where he was forcing you to march in a certain way, in a certain direction. He was just kind of in your space a little bit, and you couldn't find a way to to pressure him again. Not exactly backwards because he could still be the one mm-hmm. leading into you. What do you make of the idea that there was a jab on your part missing in a way where you could blind sting him? All the different kind of things a jab could do, but a jab to really make him respect the distance between you and him. Um, no, I, no, because because he didn't really he didn't really get anything off, or or you know I felt like we we were fighting at, at my distance. Uh, one of the biggest things, the footwork, more than anything, um, the, the the circling. Um, instead, because he keeps such a such a, a a tight narrow base, you know, he he fights all almost like a Muay Thai fighter. Mm. So the whole the whole plan was to really turn him in a circle, and and stay close enough to him to where I can hit him. Um, and I was hitting him with some good shots. I was hitting him with a lot of right hands uh, uh, that that were really stinging him. I think the first right hand that I hit him with uh, stung him. And uh, yeah, no, nah, I mean, yeah, I, I get what you're saying. Like of course uh, you could always throw more jabs, but you know I think there was a lot. I think there was a lot more than 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 just that. To be honest with you, uh, and and as as far as like he he wasn't really actually pressuring me too much. I felt like I did actually turn him pretty good. But that that's something that I'm gonna look at, at in, in a rematch. You know I, that that is something that I'm still pushing for. Um, I, I feel like a rematch should be warranted. You know we 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 put on a good fight and uh, we did it when you know. There, there really shouldn't have been a fight that weekend. You know, all the rest of these fights got canceled and, and all that. So I'm still trying to push for a rematch. Yeah, you told UFC that you wanna, you want another crack at him. Yeah, but you know, first, especially with this knee now, um, I'm not sure when that'll happen. Uh, I have to see the the results of this MRI. See, see, see how you know how long I can come back for. Um, of course, I'm gonna try and push it. I'm, I'm gonna you know push the rehab and and, and try and come back stronger, but. Uh, I still want to rematch for sure. Last thing on the like fight, you had, you had said afterwards that it could be years before someone sees you again. Certainly uh, with the injury with the knee, who yeah. knows exactly what the timeline will that would be. Uh, but was that just the emotions talking a little bit, or are you trying to get back out there perhaps a little sooner than you were relative to what you had said at that time? Yeah, I, I think it was a little bit of the emotions, to be honest with you, because at first I was thinking like two or three years. I'm like, I'm gonna t- I, I need to take a hiatus. I need to, I need to, 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 to go off from it. But then, you know, as, as I said, I'm like, okay, maybe a year, a year, a year sounds fine. Um, you know, it's, it, it has. I've never done that in my career. Even in this fight, I took this fight, uh, what eight weeks or eight or nine weeks at, after my last fight. Um, I kind of rushed it a little bit. I was rushed into it, you know. So I, I just want to take a little bit more of my time, even more than I would like to. You know, of course, I would like to to say I'll fight in September or, or October, um, but I'm, I'm going to try and push myself back even further, especially with this knee now. I, I might just have to. Uh, usually ACLs are about – they used to be like a one-year recovery, but now I'm, I'm seeing, I've been seeing guys recover in six months. Yeah, so, six uh, to nine months seems more the common one now. Yeah, I think I could push that six-month mark. And then, uh, you know, with that and then add on a three-month training camp after that, you know, yeah, that's going to put me right at a year. All right, so let's talk about what's happening around the division. I would love to get your perspective on this. Now, I don't know if the fight's going to happen, but Tony Ferguson versus Justin Gaethje. Boy, that is quite the quite the event there. I was looking at this. Uh, six fights he's had, Justin Gaethje in the UFC. He's uh, attempted yeah. a whopping zero takedowns. Zero. He's never even <laughs> tried one. Yeah, yeah. He is the opposite fight. He gets 
credit as a wrestler because he was a wrestler and he uses it defensively. But in terms of how he win fights, wins fights, excuse me, he's about the opposite of Nurmagomedov. Uh, and now he's got three more weeks to get ready for Tony. Size those two up for me. Yeah, uh, when it first was announced and, and he was kind of taking it on, on short notice, um, I just figured, you know, Gage is going to get turned into hamburger meat. You know, he's going to keep walking into them punches. Uh, Tony throws really straight. Gaethje, you know, he tries to throw straight, but but then he, he starts getting loopy, you know, as soon as he starts getting hit. And, uh, and against somebody like Tony, you know, he moves his head real well, throws his hands right down the middle. Um, he, he was going to eat him up. But like you said, now he's got a little more time to prepare for him. That's a dangerous-ass fight. I'm not really sure even why Tony's taking it, to be honest with you. Um, and then I saw even now, like, Tony still made weight. Yeah. He still made championship weight. Like, man, it's fucking crazy. Like, I, I ain't going to say I – I, look, I guess I can't take nothing from him. The shit, the shit works. So uh, does he still stand a chance? Yes. But now it's a way more dangerous fight. I think uh, the leg kicks are going to be the, the, the big deciding factor. Um, you know, Gaethje has got Whitman in his corner. They're going to come up with a hell of a game plan. And, and Tony, the way he moves and, you know, he, he likes to dance on you, uh, his, his legs are open. So I feel like if they, if they damage his leg enough, uh, they won't need the takedowns to win. How heavy so of a hit? Go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I was going to ask, how heavy of a hitter do you think Justin Gaethje is? Um, I, I think he hits hard. I mean, but but everybody hits hard. You know, Tony hits hard too. So uh, I, don't, I don't think it's I don't think that a, that's really going to be a factor. I don't think he's going to like really hit him with something that he ain't never seen before. Still though, he is again, and I'm playing devil's advocate because obviously Tony's been on one of the most amazing runs since 2012. Uh, but if I'm playing devil's advocate, I would say also Tony's 36. That's that's a little bit up there for the lightweight yeah. division. Yeah, especially if you're putting yourself through the extra shit, uh, having to make weight, uh, uh, championship weight again, and for no reason really. You know that that these weight cuts are no joke. Like you're taking a lot out of your body, um, and he's a big dude too. I know he's he's my size, so he, he's a big dude. Um, when you're 36, you're doing that. Like it, it, it don't look good, um, especially you know you dehydrating your brain. This, this is just not a good idea to do twice for for no reason, and it's such a short amount of time. So I, I see what you're saying. Maybe, maybe he could get clipped. He could, but but um, I, I don't necessarily see that happening. Tony's tough as fuck, and uh, I, don't, I don't think uh, unless unless he really puts his lights out, you know. Yeah. But I, I, I see it coming more down to to the damage kind of accumulating over just you know a one, a one shot knockout. Uh, what about the other parts of the division? Now that you're a little bit on ice with your knee, what are the other matchups you'd like? If the, assuming the UFC can roll on here, like we'll see what all happens. But what are the yeah. other lightweight matchups you think should be made? Like Poirier versus Diaz or Poirier versus Connor? Like what are you thinking? You know they can keep shuffling them all they want. Like that's what they're gonna do. Uh, you can pretty much do that any way you want to. Uh, to be honest, I, I'm, I haven't really. I don't really give a fuck about them. They, they, <laughs> no, no. There, there's nobody that really stands out, to be honest with you. Uh, I, I feel like I, I kind of dropped the ball on that one in my last fight. So you know, I'm the standout of the division. Nobody else really. You, you can, you can do that all day. I feel like you can go Dustin. You can go uh, 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 McGregor. You can pretty much match them up with anybody else in in the top 15 or or top 20 or top 25. But there's not, there's not one guy that really stands out. I'll say this then. True. I'll say this then. Who's the tougher fight for Nurmagomedov, Ferguson or Gaethje? Tony. Tony for. I mean, 
They're both tough. I don't know. Yeah, they're, they're both tough. It, I mean, each one of these fights at this level is is is, the, is they're all tough fights, you know, and they all got their own own certain style. Um, I, I see him kind of smoking Gaethje though, but then again, I mean, Gaethje has been improving in each one of these fights, so so you can't you can't never really count them out, or you can't really hold somebody to to just how they looked in their last couple fights. Uh, it's all going to depend on how how he really does in this Tony fight. Like if he comes in with such a great game plan and he really has like improved over a lot, then yeah, he, he stands a, he stands a good chance. But um, I kind of see that one going more the way that the Dustin Poirier fight went for Khabib. You know, he's just going to kind of run him over. Uh, but with Tony, that that that'll never happen. So I say Tony is is definitely the harder one. All right. Well, look, uh, you're going to the doctor today. You said. Yes, sir. Six thirty. All right, man. Well, I'll have my know. producer check in with you a little bit later. I'd like to see, if you don't mind, what the diagnosis ends up being. Um, yeah. Uh, because, uh, obviously, you know, wish you a speedy recovery if, in fact, it is injured. And if not, speedy recovery, I suppose, um, just the same. I always appreciate when fighters come on here and have the candor to talk about some of the more difficult moments. So I really appreciate this from you, Kevin. I always like talking to you. I know it's not the best of circumstances, I suppose. But uh, it's what we got. It's what we got. Yeah. It is what it is. It is what it is. I still max his line. All right, man. Uh, not, good talking to you, and we'll catch you up soon. Appreciate all your candor, and uh, rest easy. Always. Stay safe out there. Sirius XM's got a new podcast series getting you ready for the upcoming NFL Draft. With the first pick. Hosted by NFL Radio's Bruce Murray. Each episode focuses on a specific position and features in-depth analysis and interviews with top prospects. Right now, you can check out our Defensive Line episode, which showcases conversations with stars like Chase Young, Derek Brown, and more. New episodes drop every Monday leading up to the NFL Draft. Just download the Sirius XM app, search NFL Draft Previews, and enjoy. If you're a Fight Nation fan, then you must be a fan of hard-hitting fight movies, too. I want you to hit me as hard as you can. The Luke Thomas Show has put together the ultimate fight movie bracket to see which film stands above the rest. It's not tournament. It's for real. So, go to at SiriusXM Fight Nation on Instagram to cast your vote and help us crown a champion. Now, let's hear about today's matchups. Alright, we are back. Luke Thomas Show. All right, we've been doing it for, it seems like, uh, the entire quarantine, and it rolls on. We are entering the final stages of this, boys and girls. It is time now for the final four of the Ultimate Fight Movie Bracket Challenge, brought to you by the man who considers bandits an appropriate way to dip. It is the one and only King of Bandits. Hi, King of Bandits. It is the only appropriate way to dip. I'm telling you, when you get into your 30s, it's the way to be. (laughs) You think I'm going to let this go. I'm going to be unfair about it. Never. (laughs) Never, never. All right, so the voting is done for the Elite Eight, Cobb. One of the things we noticed was in each of the one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, so the, the, the four pairs, essentially, there was a Rocky movie in all of them, which means you could have a final, it's potentially possible to have a final four of all Rocky movies, which I think would be a disgrace, but I do think there maybe was one or two of these non-Rocky movies that snuck through. So why don't we just go piece by piece here on this, Let's see who made it to the final four. All right. Sounds good. And usually we would start with the first matchup that we put out, but I'm going to do this in reverse order because I'm going to go with the least dramatic first, which was our most recent uh, matchup that we put out there. So we had the original Rocky versus Fight Club. Okay. I would imagine that the original Rocky is going to take something very special to beat. I don't consider Fight Club that. Yeah. Fight Club had an interesting run. Beats out Million Dollar Baby and Kickboxer. 
But the Dark Horse stops here because it got absolutely destroyed by Rocky. Uh, 77% of the vote went to Rocky. Wow. Wow. That's expected. That one, no, no issue there for me. I didn't think it would quite be 77%, but yeah, that's what I thought. So uh, Rocky moves on. Our first Rocky movie moves on. Now we move over to the left side of the bracket. We had Rocky II versus Bloodsport. Okay, Rocky II versus Bloodsport. I have a feeling that people are stupid and don't appreciate Bloodsport's genius. By the way, Luke, the, the voting for the next for these next three matchups was the craziest, most off-the-wall voting I've seen yet. In the what Twitter way? aspect, almost every single one, the Instagram was completely different from the Twitter. Oh, it's interesting. Okay, great. All right. So what do we so, got? So in this case, we had Rocky II Bloodsport. Bloodsport actually won the Twitter vote with 59% of the vote. Wow. So a pretty nice margin there. But the Instagram vote, they lost. It lost 47. Yeah. Bloodsport only got 47% of the vote. Still pretty. And Rocky II got, Rocky II got 53. But here's the, the kicker. And as much as I tried to get you to retweet this over and over again, the hitch here was that not as many people voted on Twitter as they did on Instagram. So despite a nice 59% win, the Instagram vote pushed Rocky to past Bloodsport with 51% of the vote. Wow. Wow. So I did not expect this one. I thought Bloodsport would move on. But Bloodsport is now a victim to the Rocky franchise. So we now have count them two movies in the final four from rocky well fans are stupid what can i tell you i warned you Cobb. they just don't know what they're doing i'm I'm actually bitter like this is the first time i've been bitter at any point in this in this tournament how do you do that well they found a way i guess so we move up to rocky four versus karate kid now this one was fun luke right this one was the dullards who were totally wrong about rocky in this particular case like I get that Rocky Four, Rocky Four has certain parts of the movie that are better than certain parts of Karate Kid, but movie to movie, I don't think it's comparable. But I'm probably wrong, right? So here is the funny thing: on Twitter, when we first put this up, uh, Rocky Four got off to a pretty commanding lead. Once you retweeted it, things changed pretty drastically. Hmm. Uh, I would say within about an hour after you t- you tweeted it to the close of voting, it was absolute dead heat. It was like 49%, 50%, 50-50. And then an interesting thing happened. I guess the Karate Kid has some kind of online community amongst Twitter because someone got wind of it and I think had reposted something like, guys, we're currently losing a fight that we didn't even know we were a part of right now. And at the time, it was 51% for Rocky IV, 49% for the Karate Kid. Within the last four or five hours of voting, they flipped it. Enough people voted to where the Karate Kid actually won the Twitter vote with 51%. Whoa. So we go to Instagram, and I guess the people who flipped the vote on Twitter either didn't go to Instagram or just couldn't beat it out because the Instagram vote, Rocky Four won with 64% of the vote. <sighs> so that said, moving on, Rocky Four. We now have what three this- Rockies. <laughs> In the final four. This bracket officially sucks my balls. Can I just say that now? Dude, that's why the Bloodsport one was so bitter. Because we would have had Rocky 4 versus Bloodsport. 
And I guess if Bloodsport couldn't beat Rocky 2, I don't know how it would have done against Rocky 4. Right. But I think it would have given it, given it a better run for its money than Rocky 2 will. Oh, Jesus. All right. Well, so our last and final hope is Enter the Dragon, right? Yeah. So that is our last matchup. Rocky 3, Enter the Dragon. Again, you retweeted it. We got some great votes on it. And uh, actually, I'm going to put my notes here. So Rocky 3 actually won. I'm oh, sorry. Enter the Dragon won 70% of the vote on Twitter. Wow, okay. But as we've seen, Instagram has been changing everything. Who are these and fucking again, morons on Instagram? And once again, and I think this is our... If we combine all the matchups we've done together, I think, including this round, we've had 28 matchups. We had a first happen in the Instagram voting. Something crazy did happen. So remember, 70% of the vote went to, went to Enter the Dragon on Twitter. Yep. On Instagram... We had our first ever tie. It went a 50-50 split vote right down the middle, essentially rendering it moot. And the Twitter voting this time around pushes Enter the Dragon forward, knocking off the first Rocky movie of the franchise. And is our only non-Rocky movie in the Final Four. Okay, so the matchups are what? It's Enter the Dragon versus Rocky... The original. Oh, Jesus. And now on the other side, we have Rocky 4 versus Rocky 2. That's why I'm so bitter Bloodsport's not in. I thought it would give a good run. You should have just. Might actually get. You should have just treated it like a Latin American <laughs> democracy and just made up the results. Luke, I thought about it so hard. <laughs> but I wanted us to remain to our ethics. I really was tempted to be like, if Luke would have retweeted it, it would have won. So. Because when I tell you, I think it fell like 10 votes short of winning. Something along those lines. Golly. It was that close. Can I demand a recount? <laughs> Dude, I thought about it. <laughs> Can I force a runoff? I'm blaming you. How many times did I tell you to retweet the damn poll? <laughs> oh, my God. Well, okay. At least down, you got Enter the Dragon in there. Enter the Dragon has a hell of a road ahead of it, though, because it's got to get past the original Rocky, which if it does, holy hell, and it will most likely face Rocky Four in the final. So it's got to be the Rocky Slayer, <laughs> the next. Yeah, but if it beats the, the original Rocky, how does it lose to a subsequent Rocky? Dude, I, I, Rocky Four. I, you've seen how it just moved through people, moved through the Karate Kid. I don't know if this matchup. I think it comes out to everything is Enter the Dragon versus Rocky. That's your ultimate winner, I think. Whoever wins that wins the whole thing, probably. Right. Which, by the way, is like to me like. It's like a 90s Big East championship matchup between Enter the Dragon and the original Rocky. Yeah, that's that's Georgetown versus Villanova right there back in the day. <laughs> yes. But um, that is our final four right now. One God, man, I cannot one... believe there are three Rockies in there. That is so disappointing. I was shocked that Rocky 2 made it past. Now I hate Rocky. <laughs> I know, right? I'm so rooting for so hardcore for Enter the Dragon this entire way. Now I'm rooting for Clubber Lang and Ivan Drago. Fuck Rocky. I hate Rocky now. He ruined my. <laughs> he ruined this whole tournament. Uh, all right. Well, we're not going to vote today, but just as a reminder, we'll start the voting again on Monday, and we'll make the cases. Uh, as a reminder for Monday, how do people vote? Uh, we are going to have, I got, once again, considering they seem to be in direct opposition to each other. Yeah. As we move, as we move forward in this tournament, uh, there'll be a poll on Twitter at MMA on SiriusXM, and there will be a poll on our Instagram at SiriusXM Fight Nation. Thanks for listening. 
afternoon. Catch the Luke Thomas Show live and in its entirety weekdays from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM Fight Nation Channel 156. On Twitter, follow at L Thomas News and the channel at MMA on Sirius XM.